Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, with Pastor John King. Before we start today, we're going to have a special time. Uh, we're going to have a baby dedication. So if uh, Bailey and Melanie and Elias, Helen Holtzman would please come forward. We're going to have a baby dedication. Pastor John, come on up. Where do you want to be? You want to, most, your family's over here, so let's come over here. Uh, I'll try not to trip and, well, anyway, don't say those kind of things. <laughs> silliness, silliness. Well, um, <clears throat> this is a special baby dedication. As many of you are aware, uh, Elias is uh, scheduled for a uh, pretty remarkable surgery in the next month or so. And so we wanted to use this as an opportunity, and Bailey and Melody wanted to, uh, bring him up and not only dedicate him, but to uh, anoint him with oil and pray for him as a church family. And so uh, since he's sleeping so well, I'm just going to, I'm not going <laughs> to disturb things if that's, if that's okay. Um, let's pray for uh, Elias and John. Let's anoint him with oil. Let's pray for what's coming up, yeah. okay? Real quick, church body, why do we anoint with oil? Because it tells us in the Word that it, it's biblical. And when we anoint with oil, it's a way of, of setting aside. It's, think of it as the equivalent of putting your arms, when we pray for someone, spiritually putting your arms around them, letting them know at this moment that we're, we're, we're seeking the Lord on his behalf. And so this is biblical. This is something we do as a church family. And we know that the, the uh, what baby Eli is going to be encountering the next season, it's gonna need our prayers. This family is going to need their prayers your prayers and it is an honor and it's a blessing to come alongside and it's simply just the anointing of oil it's just olive oil and we're just saying yes we're in agreement that yes lord we're going to come along and we're going to intercede and pray and it's an honor and it's a blessing for all of us as a church family to come along and pray so would you please join us would you please extend your hands as a just reflection of faith as we pray and so, Heavenly Father, we ask that you go before this precious young boy. You know, he, he will not remember any of this, Lord, but we know that he is a brave and strong young man, and we know especially for his parents, for Bailey and Melanie, that they've been so faithful to trust you through this, this difficult time and for their family, Lord. So we just ask for your blessings to be upon this young man. We know that you have great plans and great, a great future for him. And so, Lord, we just lift him up to you, and we ask, Father God, that with the coming weeks and days and the surgery that's uh, on the horizon, Lord, we ask that your hand would be with the surgeon, that your hand would be with the doctors, the anesthesiologists, the nurses, the aftercare specialists, the administrative folks, the counselors, everyone there at King's Daughters Hospital. We ask that you would be with Bailey and Melanie, uh, the Holtzman family, Lord God, we ask for the grandparents and the parents and everybody involved, all the relatives, Lord God. We ask that you would bless this family and cover them. But mainly, Lord, we ask and we bring this child before you and we dedicate him to you, Lord. And we ask, Father, that someday he would come to know you, Lord, and that he would serve you in a mighty and a powerful way. And Lord, we know that you have a desire for all children you know that we are not to withhold children, the little children from you, Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we dedicate Elias Holtzman to you today. And we thank you, Lord, 
for the honor and the privilege that it is to join together as a church body and to do that. So we thank you. Go before us. Go before this precious little one. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. We have, a, we have something. Yeah, let's pray. You guys, hold on right there. This is, uh, let's, let's all stand. Let's all stand for just a moment again, please. We have a, a call and response, a challenge to you, Bailey and Melanie. The question is, is, do you desire that your child will grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord? And do you promise to provide for him a Christian home where God is honored and his word is taught? Do you pledge yourselves to live in such a way that your words and actions will commend Jesus and his church to your child? Now, one last question. Do you promise that you will be for them or for Eli a spiritual guide, praying and watching for the day when he will be ready to receive Christ as personal Lord and Savior? Amen. Now, to the congregation. Do you, Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City, covenant with these parents to provide a loving church home for Elias and his family. Do you promise to continue supporting the teaching of the Bible in this church so that these children, all the children, will never lack hearing the truth of God's word? Amen. Well, with that, we conclude our baby dedication service. You may be seated. <clears throat> it's always nice to be able to do that, especially, uh, gosh, last week we had a baptism. This week we had a baby dedication. Lord, what's next? <laughs> to the rapture. <laughs> of course. Ah, but until that day. Maranatha, yes. Uh, today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. We'll be in verses 1 through 14. So while you're turning there, I just want to remind you that we're still celebrating the decision of the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade. We're st- I, you know what? Yeah, we're still celebrating that. Right out the gate, it's been said that just from that one decision and that, uh, what, that happened, it's estimated that the abortions on demand of the abortion industry is going to lose up to one-third of their clients immediately, right away. Amen? Now, we know there's a lot of work to be done. You know that we're working with our local pregnancy centers. We work with Love Life. But let's not be ashamed, Christians, to celebrate this wonderful thing that's happened in our country. Um, Don't let the bullies in the church tell you that you shouldn't be celebrating this because it is at a major milestone for our country. We're not arrived. We haven't arrived. We know that but we still want to enjoy the blessings that the Lord has brought forth and the saving of those unborn children who cannot defend themselves from this vile industry. So we just want to be thankful for that. Also, this week, tomorrow, we celebrate 4th of July, of course, 1776. Oz Guinness wrote a, a book recently, and it's a really long title. But in his book... Oz Guinness challenges Christians and he challenges Americans to make a decision about where you want to go with uh, with history in mind. You see, we could be 1776 as a nation, a nation that was founded on biblical principles, 
We can choose to encourage and, and move forward with that as a country. Or, unfortunately, we could go the way of the French Revolution in 1789, which brought forth socialism and communism. And so we need to be praying in the days, especially on this 4th of July. I can't think of a more important season that we're in right now as we get ready to celebrate the 4th of July as families and as a church. And so pray that our nation would somehow, by God's grace, come together. Because as Oz Guinness would say, 1776 and 1789, those worldviews cannot continue to exist in parallel. One of them will overpower the other. And so we don't know what time that's, we don't know when things are going to change. We don't know what's going to happen, but we are seeing a shift. And again, uh, we'll see what the Lord wants to do as we continue to pray. And I also want to remind one more, one more thing before we start our message today. Man, we meet every two weeks on Tuesday nights. We'll meet not this week, but the following week. Uh, I, I just want to encourage you to come out. It's uh, from six o'clock until around seven o'clock. And our only agenda is to pray and to meet with the Lord and to see what he will do among us. And not only among us, but in our families, in our culture, whatever situation we have, men, we need to come together. And so I want to encourage you, you will continue to hear me asking the men to join. We've had more people come out. I know schedules can be a problem, but you know what? Let's set that as a priority and come out on uh, not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's go to, into our word for today. Uh, yesterday, or last week, you know, we're in the, in the book of Galatians. Last week, um, Paul finished talking about his past experiences at Antioch. Uh, he was relating uh, his early church experiences to the Galatians in order to illustrate the effects of false teaching and hypocrisy. And we also saw when Paul uh, publicly uh, came, uh, spoke to Peter last week, he publicly rebuked Peter, that there is sometimes a necessity to deal with issues head on. There is a necessity to deal with uh, situations in a public way, especially when the gospel is being trampled upon. Um, and so Paul now is going to begin to increasingly, through the book of Galatians, it's kind of like a mini Romans, if you know your Bible, it's kind of like a mini Romans uh, uh, letter because the doctrine of our identity in Christ is so important, the doctrine of justification. So he's going to do that. Um, this week, we're going, to, we're going to actually start the next major section here in Paul's letter. He provided his own testimony. Now he's going to appeal to their testimony, to their experience. He's going to talk about three primary events that uh, bolster the doctrine of what we see uh, sometimes from Ephesians. Grace through faith and that not of works. Because the false teaching that was going on was that you had to add something to your faith your, to become a Christian. You weren't a true Christian in the eyes of these false teachers at the churches in Galatia until you started being like a Jew. And in this case, maybe adopting circumcision and other things. So it was the Jesus plus uh, you know, equation, which is no equation for salvation whatsoever. And so uh, he says, you know, he bases it on three primary events to... to to speak to this grace, first of all, uh, as we said, the Galatians' own experience and their own testimony of the pure gospel that they had received from Paul, number one. Number two, the experience of Abraham. He gives them a history lesson on what, the, what Abraham did and how he came to faith. Um, he came to faith prior to being a Jew. 
He came to faith prior to being circumcised. Abraham came to faith prior to the law, 400 years prior. And so this idea of mixing uh, Judaism with Christianity to be call yourself a true Christian was, was a false idea, and he's going to prove that. And then, of course, he's going to go back to Scripture, and he's going to say that it's clear that if you try to keep the law apart from grace, it's like putting a curse upon yourself. You're in bondage to the law. And so we're going to cover those things. Kind of, it, may, it does sound familiar, similar to Romans, uh, but remember that no one apart from Jesus could keep the law perfectly. So let's look at our passage, verses 1 through 14 of Galatians 3. He starts out, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh or by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith, yet the law is not of faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Heavenly Father, again, we come to this very important truth that, you know, you wouldn't think we'd have to be reminded that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of works. But Lord, we know that it's our tendency to try and work our way, to try and get you to love us more by being do-gooders, by showing off our spirituality sometimes, Lord God, by not just simply walking and being led by the Spirit, but being taken over by our flesh. Even though our intentions are good, Lord, we know that it's not the way to go. And that makes our intentions not so good. So, Father, help us submit to you. Let us be filled with your Holy Spirit and all the things we do in your name. Go before us now as we study your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So, first of all, he starts out by proving that justification is by faith alone. And he does this by talking about their experience. He opens with a rather loud... Uh, rebuke. He says, oh foolish Galatians. Now foolish is meaning uh, someone who's not understanding or not wise. You see, they were carelessly drinking the Kool-Aid of false teaching 
by not thinking or considering what it was that they were being taught. You and I, when you, well, I say to you, me, I'm responsible. Again, I say, don't trust me, trust the Word of God. But we need to consider and we need to think what we're being taught. We don't just drink it and take it in. And so Paul rebuked them for that. And it's not as though they were unable to understand the truth because they had been thoroughly taught the pure gospel by Paul, the pure gospel. But they weren't using the understanding that they had to discern falsehood. And that's what the Lord gives us. He gives us wisdom when we stay in his word. Now, we can compare that to the famous Berean church, uh, Acts 17, 11. Paul had things, good things to say. He says, these, or whoever wrote Acts, he says, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So now they were taken in the word, they were listening, attentive to the word, but they searched the scriptures daily. They came back, you know, from any kind of teaching and they got back in their Bibles and they reread it or whatever it was. That's the thing we need to do as we take our notes. You know, it's not just in one ear and out the other and then back to another thing next Sunday. We need to stay in the word of God. And so he says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? In other words, it's, it's almost like a situation where you see somebody a generic situation where you just can't understand why they've gone and done such a thing because you know they know better. And it's almost as though they're under a spell, that word bewitched. Uh, how could you be so misled, in other words, is what Paul was saying. Now, the word bewitched uh, is a Greek word. It describes to bring evil on someone by false praise or an evil eye or to charm someone. I like what David Guzik says about what the ancient world, how they would think, and we sometimes see it today, uh, what the evil eye meant in the ancient world, this bewitching. He writes, the evil eye was thought to work in the way of a serpent that could hypnotize its prey with its eyes. Once a victim looked into the evil eye, a spell could be cast. Therefore, the way to overcome the evil eye was simply to not look at it. It was in using this phrasing, um, excuse me, therefore, the way to, excuse, I said that, in using this phrasing, he writes, and the word picture of bewitched, Paul encouraged the Galatians to keep their eyes always and steadfastly upon Jesus. You know the old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus? You know, look however the rest of it goes. That's a good one to keep in mind if you don't have a scripture verse to remember, but, you know, we... Again, um, we can be very misled where we place our eyes. And, and that we have a problem today. It's called a flat screen. It's called a phone. And it packs so much information in that little device. And it makes it so easy for you and I to get information. And we need to really be discerning and careful. Sometimes we're just having fun or whatever, uh, you know, enjoying, you know, it's, it's, it's become a fun thing to catch up on the news or whatever it is with your phone or listen to some music. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes it can really come in and to affect us and lead to things like we've talked about before, especially pornography, a big problem in our culture and in the church. He says, 
before whose eyes, now Paul says, look, who's bewitched you? He says, before whose eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Paul gave them the clear gospel, the clear understanding. He's referring to the fact that his teaching to the Galatian church about Jesus' crucifixion was not the least bit vague. You're familiar with the passage in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, uh, Paul talks about, I, brethren, when I came to you from Athens, or he came from Mars Hill, he says, when I came to you, uh, do not, I did not come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The very simple fact that this was very clear in his mind. This, this being clearly portrayed, it's a, it's a word... Uh, uh, prographo. This is where we der- derive the word graphic from. It's like a graphic, uh, a billboard, if you will. And uh, it, it, he would say, you know, you, it's like a public notice, a digital sign in our age, if you will, something that's easy to read and easily discernible. Well, this is how Paul presented the gospel and the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified for their sins. So his teaching was so clear that they could see it in their mind's eye. That's how clearly they could see it, yet they chose to be deceived. They chose to be bewitched by false teachers. Last week we saw how Paul withstood Peter to his face for not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. He, gave him a, he was given a crooked message by his you know, only eating with the Jews and being separate from the filthy Gentiles and putting on a show for the bigwigs from Jerusalem. Now Paul is rebuking the Galatian church for their buy-in to the perverted gospel of the false teachers. They were mixing the law with grace to secure salvation. And so as bad as these false teachers were, these Judaizers, it was the Galatians who should have been able to stand up to them. But instead they caved in. You see, it's not enough to know and even profess the truth. It's not enough for us to recite scriptures and profess the truth. We are to live it out with conviction. Notice I said with conviction and not perfection because we talked about that last week. Knowing that we do set a high moral standard, but yes, we fall short of it. And we don't want to act like we don't and be called hypocrites. So it's not enough to know or profess the truth. We need to live it out. So Paul, in verses 2 through 5, he now goes through like a Q&A. You know, he does this a lot in his writings. He asks the question, then he gives the answer. He says, this I, verse 2, this only I want to learn from you. I want you to inform me now. Uh, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? A very direct, simple question. Now the audacity of that, that's sort of a, a, uh, that's sort of a um, sarcastic question. Why? Because the church at Galatia was mostly Gentiles. They wouldn't know anything about the law. They weren't raised under the law of Moses. He says, did you receive receive the Spirit? Now, receiving the Spirit, this is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that every believer has at salvation. It's a gift from God. He comes and He dwells within you. You may not be aware of His presence because you quench the Spirit or you grieve the Spirit by letting your flesh take over. But you and I, if you're a believer... The Holy Spirit, you receive it at salvation. He says, did you receive it 
the spirit of um, believing by believing what you heard, you know, what Paul had said? Or was it simply because, um, or he says, did you hear it by faith? In other words, did you hear it by faith or did you hear it by works is what he's going to be saying. He says, think about your salvation experience. There were no hoops to jump through. There was nothing that you needed to do. It was simply to receive and to believe and receive the message. The Paul presented the pure and the simple gospel message, and they believed it and they received it. So the law had nothing to do with it. That's the whole reason why he's bringing in the law. He says, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of the faith? The law had nothing to do with it. They knew nothing of the law. But now that they're saved, they're actually adopting the law. It doesn't make sense. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Again, he uses that word. He calls out their folly. He says, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Salvation is a supernatural event. It brings us justification. We talked about that last week. Just as if I'd never sinned. All sins, past, present, and future, have been washed away, will not be brought to remembrance. It's God's work completely without adding anything to it. So important. He says, so are you now, having, having begun in the Spirit, are you now uh, you know, changing direction, the former time of salvation by faith in Christ? Now you think you're being made perfect, you're being to finish the rest of your walk as a Christian, to finish your rest of your time here on earth as a believer, being made perfect by the flesh, by gradually losing the influence of the Holy Spirit and giving yourself up to the control of the flesh. Because we love religion. We love it. We're, you know, in some ways addicted. We're going to talk more about this next week. Because it helps to answer the question, when we understand our human nature, we love being religious. Religiosity breeds pride. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it tries to take the, the, the ability to be saved onto me and not God, not submitting to God. Part of God's plan for us as believers is the transformation of our attitudes and our desires. You know, he's, we're a work in progress. Why does he want to do that? Well, the reason is, is he wants to fulfill his purpose for our lives in us and through us. That's what we call sanctification. You're justified at your salvation, and now as you walk as a believer, you're being sanctified. But you don't do either one by keeping the law. And then he says in verse 4, against another question, he goes, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? When Paul and Barnabas went up to Galatia, to plant the churches in the places. Uh, you see in Acts chapter 14, we're not going to read all that, but there was a, some episodes when they went up to plant these churches and they received a lot of violence. There were multitudes, there were people, first of all, it was kind of strange. They were either being worshipped by the believers there and they were being called you know, Zeus and Hermes and they wanted, they wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas and they're like, no, you're not going to do that. They were going to sacrifice animals to them or the Jews that were there wanted to stone them and kill them. And so Paul was saying, have you suffered so many things in vain? So even, you know, just like Paul and Barnabas suffered persecution, the church there would suffer persecution from the Jews. And he's saying, if you suffer these things in vain, 
um, you know, by basically coming back and obeying the Jewish laws. You, you've, you've, you came to faith, you came against all of that, you were persecuted for your faith as Jesus would promise all of us, and now you want to come under the law. And he's, he says, no. But then he says, interesting at the end of that verse, he says, if indeed it was in vain. So he leaves with a glimmer of hope that he can bring them back to their senses. You know, Paul hasn't written this church off. He has a great concern for them, which is why, obviously, that he's writing the letter. So in verse 5, he says, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? or by the hearing of faith. Paul is again referencing the things that took place in the church at Galatia. Uh, Acts 14.3, when they came in, it says, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the words of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So all these things were taking place. The miracles were taking place. Yes, they were being persecuted. And Paul's like, Does God supply the Spirit to you? Does he do it by the works of the law or by your faith, your belief? And of course, the answer is no. It's by faith, not by the works of the law. God blesses people as they receive his gifts by faith, not because people have earned his favor by adhering to the law. That's an important doctrine. And again, we're addicted to our religion, we're addicted to our works, and so we're always going to have that battle. Now, in his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul had a, very, a much different tone. In, in the Philippians uh, 1, 3 through 5, he, he wrote to them, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you uh, with joy, for all of you, with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I mean, they remained faithful. Paul, you know, he was, he was uh, rejoicing. He says, being confident, in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's the thing. The Lord, uh, you can always, when you, when you kind of have these doubts about your walk with the Lord, you're doubting, you know, things that are happening in your life, you're you're going through persecution or spiritual battles. You've got to remember the promises of God. And you, and you can be confident of these things. That the one who began this life in you, when you became a Christian, who gave you the Spirit, justified you by your faith, and is now sanctifying you, will continue until the day of Jesus' return. Whether he comes for his church at the rapture, or you know whether you... Uh, meet him in the clouds at the same time, you know, at the end of time, or if you're a tribulation saint, at his second coming. But notice how Paul seeks to strengthen the Galatians by referring to their salvation. And the important thing for you and I is uh, keep in mind your testimony. I, I say it oftentimes, I like to journal because journaling helps me remember God's promises. I can write the scriptures in there. I can recount the events of my life and the things that he's taken me through by journaling. And I can, you know, you, you have your testimony. Nobody can take that from you. No matter what, nobody can take that from you. And the testimony, of course, is how God has changed your life. Ephesians 6, 16 through 17, he wrote, Above all, taking the shield of faith, which 
with which you will be able to quench the, all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Notice it says all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation. Your mind is made up. You are fully confident that the Lord will finish the work that he's begun in your life. And you don't need to jump over to legalism. You don't need to jump over to works-based things to continue your faith in Christ. When you and I are under spiritual attack, whether it's through false teaching, spiritual bullying, the sins of the past, our physical persecution, whatever it is, when we stumble in sin and we repent of our sins, remember your testimony of your faith in Jesus Christ. Next, we come into our next section, Abraham's salvation. This is what's been called the ultimate illustration as Paul gives them a history lesson about about their faith. He says, just as Abraham believed in God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. To believe is to trust. And the Lord credited his account with righteousness, even before Jesus' time, he credited his account with righteousness so that he could be made acceptable before God. Righteousness simply means uh, the state of being acceptable to God, this is a dictionary, which becomes a sinner's possession through, but through that faith which he embraces the grace of God offered him through the death of Jesus Christ, the, pay, the payment that was paid on the cross. Now Paul here in verse 6 in Galatians 3, he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. In the life of Abraham, this was when he, Abraham, received God's covenant promise to provide a seed or offspring to, of the descendants that would number the stars of the heaven. You know, the, the world's, the descendants of believers, uh, spiritual children, if you will. And in Genesis 15, 5, his trust and his belief brought him to salvation. As we said earlier, he was accounted for righteousness. Now keep in mind this about Abraham He was saved by faith 14 years prior to him being circumcised. We're going to talk about the reason why he was circumcised here in a minute. His circumcision was 400 years prior to the law being given in Mount Sinai. So you should start to see the picture here. In verse 7 he says, Therefore know know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. When he says, therefore, no, he's kind of like, you guys need to get this. You need to understand this, you you Galatians. It was almost like a command. Only those who are of faith are called sons of Abraham. And that's everyone who has been made righteous before God through faith alone, whether they're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Everyone is a true spiritual descendant of Abraham. We don't talk much about that. We can't explain that very well, hopefully I won't confuse you, and hopefully you will be able to explain it a little better today. We are all saved the same way as Abraham was saved, and that's by grace through faith. He believed God. So uh, one writer puts this way, to be called sons of Abraham refers to those who express their faith like Abraham, but they're not Abraham's biological sons. Abraham, Father Abraham to us represents the model faith for all believers, both Jews and non-Jewish people or Gentiles. Now, didn't we say that Abraham was circumcised? Yes, we did. Why was he circumcised? 
Well, Abraham was a pivotal, he played a pivotal role in God's plan. God chose Abraham to do certain things, and he had, a, he had this plan of redemption for all of mankind. Romans 4.11, speaking of Abraham, it says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still being uncircumcised. He came to faith before he was circumcised. He came to faith before there was actually a Jewish race. He was a Gentile. He was, he was, he was not born a Jew. But God created a race of people through him. It says, Romans 4.11, that the spiritual father of all those who believe, he's the spiritual father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Why is this so important? You know, in our world, we don't, we don't see this as a big deal in our culture, but in that time, you know, it was so important because you had so many new converts from the Gentile world mingling with the church members, the first church members who were Jews. Some believe, some scholars and commentators believe that the false teachers, what they were trying to tell the Galatians, they were trying to say, look, if you get circumcised, you become like physical descendants of Abraham, which is something, why would you even care about that? And that's kind of why Paul is so upset. Because he says, you're already sons of Abraham in a spiritual sense. So that's where the argument comes in that you see here in the scriptures. It says in verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. God's plan of redemption was clear in the scripture before circumcision in the law so that the false teachers are clearly a mile off. They're way off base. He shoots their whole uh, doctrine. He sinks their whole ship right there with this whole idea that you had to become circumcised to be a true Christian, to be considered a true person of God. Because it already happened. It was already taken care of. It says God would justify the Gentiles by faith. He knew that. Paul argues that his message, the justification of the Gentiles through faith, apart from the law, was always part of God's plan. You know, when you see the depth of God's wisdom, and it goes back thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years in recorded history and recorded in the Bible, you realize that it was always the plan that people would come to faith by, come to um, the gospel by faith apart from the law. But he did tell Abraham, he says, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Again, Abraham's important role in God's uh, plan of redemption, the reason why all nations could be blessed was because the nation Israel would bring the Messiah. And he would be the physical father of Israel as well. So in verse 9 it says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. In other words, we share the blessings of Abraham. If somebody says, who is Abraham? Well, he was the father of, of the Jewish Jews. He's also your spiritual father, you and I, if you're a believer. Finally, we look at a, in the last section of today's message, we look at the uh, verses 10 through 14. Paul is now, he's turning away from this sort of experiential, this subjective experience to evidence from the word of God 
And I like what Warren Wiersbe said. When it, when it comes to Scripture, he says, we never judge Scriptures by our experience. We never judge Scriptures by our experience. We test our experience by the Word of God. We test our experience by the Word of God. Verses 10, verse 10, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The law is very strict. It requires complete obedience. You cannot pick and choose what you like and you don't like if you decide to live under the law of Moses. The only way to avoid being cursed under the law is through perfection, perfectly keeping it. Verse 11, he says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. No one. It's obvious when we look at each other's lives and we see all of our flaws, we see our sin tendencies, we see our shortcomings, we see our failures, we know about our inconsistencies. Paul says it's evident that no one is justified by the law. He says in verse 12, Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. In this case, Paul, someone wants to argue with you and say, well, you know, it takes faith to believe and to obey the law. Paul shows that from Leviticus that in God's eyes, obedience to the law is not simple belief. You have to actually pull it off. You know, you, you can say all you want about the law, but you actually have to live it to the letter in God's eyes if you're going to live under the law because God is perfectly just. In verse 13, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us hanging, if you will. He sent Jesus to do that. He was cursed. He hung on the cross, or he is referred to as hangs on a tree. It says, um, we were once slaves to sin and bondage, but he brought us and he set us free through him. He paid the price. He purchased our salvation with his blood. But the Judaizers, these, these false teachers, wanted to bring them back into that and bring them back under that. And what does that do? It brings us back into spiritual captivity and bondage to the law. And that's what's been made free. Finally, in verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in faith, in, or in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. One writer put it this way. A question for us, do you want the blessing of Abraham? It comes through Christ. Do you want the gift of the Spirit? It comes through Christ. But you are a Gentile. This was, gift was given through Christ to the Gentiles. All you need is Christ. There is no reason to go back to Moses. Finally, as we conclude our message today, you know, we can often fall into these little inner groups or inner circles. We get into these sort of cliques where we think, you know, only a select member of the church or select group have attained a higher status, if you will, that you may enjoy higher privileges as a Christian, and that's what they were trying to do. But none of this exists in God's kingdom. This is all false. Because all who have put their faith in Christ are immediately members of the body of Christ in the fullest sense. They're in Christ. And so what higher status could there possibly be other than to be in Christ?
Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together. Lord, we thank you that you have proven throughout and through in this scripture, this passage for today, that there's no special formula that's needed, no certain types of works or no secret code that requires a person to come to salvation in you, to come to know you. It simply comes through believing, hearing the word of the gospel message and believing and trusting that it's true. And Lord, we know from our testimony that we witness change in our lives that goes far beyond that initial experience, Lord. We know that you trust us or that we can put our trust in you, that we can have full confidence in you and all the work that you desire to do in our hearts. Lord, help us simply not to represent your word, not to represent the gospel to others, but to show the grace and the love that you have given us. Lord, guide our steps as we study your word through the rest of Paul's letter in the coming weeks, Lord. Help us to understand fully, to be made complete in you, Lord, as we continue on, Lord, just to be conformed into your likeness, to be drawn into your truth, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your loving kindness. Thank you for all that you do as you go before us. Guide our steps now as we celebrate our weekend with our family and friends. We pray for our nation. We pray for our communities, Lord. Go before us. We thank you for the wonderful work that you've done and the work that you shall continue as we trust you in faith. Go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, let's stand. We're going to recite our final prayer, our closing prayer from number six. Number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.